right, so we're going to start. Now, I've got my allergies are pretty bad. I'm about to lose my voice. So if I can't finish, Corby's going to come up and finish it. The, the, the rules say that whoever read the gospel reading has to finish the sermon if the pastor can't continue. So, so that's just the way it has to go if I can't continue the sermon today. Now, the idea to have a Father's Day, a day to honor dads, is a, is a great one. We're told to give honor to whom honor is due. Fathers deserve to be honored in many ways. Uh, they influence their families. And, and you could say that fathers in many ways shape their families. They, they shape the future. It's hard to tell the exact impact a father can have upon their children. They shape their values. In, they influence their life choices. And since fathers have so much influence upon their children, upon people in their lives... Every father leaves behind a legacy. As dads, I want you to think about that. As, as a dad, or as a young man who are not quite dads yet, but want to be someday, you, you will leave a legacy behind. And the question is, what kind of legacy will you leave? Because you will leave one. But will it be good or bad, godly or ungodly? We talked about this in Mother's Day. We're going to do the same sort of thing in on Father's Day. We're going to compare and contrast two different dads today. A bad dad and a good dad, as it were. We're going to look at the example of the, the bad dad. See the, what he did to leave an ungodly legacy. We're going to look at the good dad to see what he did to leave a, a godly legacy. We're doing this because we want to learn from the mistakes of one. And we want to try to emulate the example of another. So let's pray before we get started. Father, open our hearts to your word today. Let it speak to us. Guide us as dads. Father, take this seriously. Take it to heart. Uh, just let us. Lord, if, if there's elements of our lives in the bad example, Lord, let us see it. Let it smoke. Smite us, let our hearts be struck because of it. Let us turn away from those things. Father, help us to <clears throat> to be sure we're living to, to set a good example, a godly example, a godly legacy for our kids. Have your way in all things. Fill me with your spirit. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Uh, be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, our first dad is in Exodus, or I'm sorry, Genesis 13. We're going to start in verse 5. And, and the bad dad, his name is Lot. Now, already, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the story of Lot, you're aware he is a really, really bad example. Right? He's not, he's not sort of good, but made a few bad turns in his life. Um, in, in many ways, Lot could possibly be the worst example of fatherhood in the history of of fatherhood. And, and what we want to do is, is learn from his mistakes. Right? Because, of course, the saying is it's wise to learn from your own mistakes. But it's even wiser to learn from the mistakes of others. So we're going to look at what Lot did and, and see how he acted and what resulted in him leaving behind the ungodly legacy he led behind. And what I'm going to do is, and there's, there's three things that he did. 
And I'm going to put them in the form of a of an application point. Go and do this, because if you want to leave an ungodly legacy behind, do these things. And you certainly will. So the first thing. Is covet the things of the world. So Genesis 13. Verse five. Now Lot, who went with Abram. Also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not contain, support them both while living together. For their possessions were great, and they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of uh, Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land at the time. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. Let there be no strife between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are relatives. Entire land is before you. Please separate from me. If you choose left, I'll go right. If you choose the right, I'll go left. And Lot raised his eyes and saw all the vicinity of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt going towards Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the vicinity of Jordan. Lot journeyed eastward. So they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities and the vicinities of Jordan and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked sinners against the Lord. So the situation is God has blessed Abraham and all those who are with him to the point that Lot has had come with him as his nephew, possibly as a minor, but now he's a grown man. Now he has his own flocks, his own herds, and, and being that close together, two flocks and two herds is causing confusion, it's causing problems, it's causing strife. So Abraham doesn't want there to be strife because this is his nephew that he loves and he's helped raise. And so he, he gives him the choice. All the land is before us. I'll let you choose where to go. Now, Abraham is the head of the family. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. And he gives Lot the choice. You you choose where you want to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction. But notice in verse 10, I think this is significant. That Lot raised his eyes. I'm sorry, yeah, verse 10. Lot raised his eyes. Now, it seems significant to me that he, he raised his eyes. It seems to reflect pride. It's not so much to me the way it's worded, especially something that happens later. It's not so much he's like looking, but it's maybe an entitlement mentality. Well, of course I would choose. I, I get I deserve what's best. I deserve what is best. And as he he looked, he chose the best for himself. Now, never mind. That his uncle has given him. Basically he has everything he has because of his uncle. Never mind that his uncle has raised him. Never mind that his uncle is the head of the family. Never mind that. That's the best. I want the best for me. Lot's decision to go towards Sodom. To go toward Gomorrah. Is based upon his love of the world. And all the things the world Offered him. Now the reason this is so significant. Is because. If you boil it down. Lot simply wanted to be successful. 
Lot made his decision because he wanted to provide what was best for his family. And choosing the well-watered plains and moving towards Sodom make this possible. But it's a sensual choice. It's a worldly choice. And therefore, it is a sinful choice. Any decision motivated by a love of the world will always have a negative consequence on our lives and on our family. The word warns us to love not the world, neither things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. And it tells us that, that these things are never from God. So any decision any of us make that's rooted in coveting the things of the world is not, cannot be God's will. Are we coveting the things of the world? If we are, we're on a path of leaving behind an ungodly legacy. But this wasn't the only thing that he did. He also compromised the principles of God's word. Now, satisfying our love for the things of the world will always require us to eventually compromise the principles of God's word. Again, we see this with Lot. Lot settled in the vicinity of the cities of Jordan and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now, the way this is pictured, this isn't Lot left Abraham and just bolted for Sodom straight on. Instead, the, the picture is he went little by little. He, he moved out away from Abraham towards Sodom. But, but Sodom was a wealthy city. And Sodom, the people of Sodom were prosperous and they were technologically advanced. I mean, living in a city is better than living in a tent in the field. So he moved a little bit closer. He moved a little bit closer. He started making friendships with them, having relations with the people in the city. And he moved a little bit closer and a little bit closer. Until eventually, as we're going to see, he's living in the city. He has abandoned his tents. He has abandoned his herds. And he is a city dweller amongst the people of Sodom. But notice what we're told about the character of the people of Sodom. They were wicked or exceedingly wicked sinners against the Lord. Now, it's not likely this was a surprise. It's not likely that when Lot moved in, lived there among them for a little bit, and then was like, holy smokes, these are not good people. What happened was he wanted what they offered. And so, little by little, he compromised. Well, yeah, they're not best, but hey. Well, I won't get into that. That's, that's soapbox, and I'll stop there. He said, ah, yeah, they're not right there, but I'll, I'll move a little bit closer here. Ah, well, they can help me. I mean, this will be good for me. And, and what I get from them, I'll use to honor the Lord. And they, he began to, to rationalize his compromises. And again, I doubt... He took any extremely large steps. I don't think he just walked straight to Sodom. A little compromise here, a little movement there, a little compromise here, a little movement there. And over time, as we'll see in a minute, Lot became one of them. Little steps 
over time add up. Chances are we can all think of someone who used to be a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus. But despite maybe a profession of faith in Jesus, their lives testify they are very far from Jesus now. And if we know them well and we're close to their lives, we would say it wasn't a massive thing. It wasn't like they went to bed a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus and woke up the next day and wanted nothing to do with it. Instead, there were little compromises here. A little step away from Jesus there. A little more over here, a little more over there, some rationalization here. And none of the steps really seemed like they were that big at the time. But little steps add up over time. Rarely do disciples of Jesus start by making big compromises. They make a little one here and a little one there and a rationalization here. And over time, it adds up into deep drift away from Jesus. Deep compromise of the principles of God's word. Are we compromising the principles of God's word? If we are, we're on the path to leaving behind an ungodly legacy. And then finally, in a lot of ways, I think all of these build, right? It starts with coveting. He started with with coveting the things of the world. And then he began to compromise to acquire the things he coveted. And he compromised so much, conformed to the values of the world. Now, now God's word all throughout teaches God wants his people to be different than the unbelievers around him. That's the point of Leviticus 19. It's the point of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Instead of being like the world, we're to be holy because our, our God is holy. We're, we're to have different morals and values and priorities and, and attitudes. We're to, we're to talk different and to think different and to act different and to react stressors different. I mean, there's just no area of our life where we should resemble an unbelieving world. That's what, that's what God's word says. And Lot's coveting led to compromise, which eventually led him to becoming just like the exceedingly wicked men. Of Sodom. Turn to Genesis 19. So the story goes. Sodom is bad. It's really, really bad. Sodom is so bad. That God takes a personal interest. And determines that among all the cities in the world. Sodom and Gomorrah cannot continue before him. The stench of their wickedness and idolatry and immorality is so much God must judge them if he has continued to be a holy and a just God. And so God sends angels 
to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and kind of the point is they're on a reconnaissance mission. Now, God knows that they're as bad as he thinks they are. But the point of the angels going is so that no one can say, well, God never came here. God just thought it was bad. But the angels went there so they could say, boom, we had eyes on, burn it down. And as they arrive, look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Now, the two angels came to Sodom at the evening as, as Lot was sitting at the gate. Now, sitting at the gate for you and I doesn't mean much. Our cities typically don't have gates. But in this day, it was significant. The gate of the city is where leaders of the city and businessmen gathered to make decisions. Right? The people who would be allowed to sit at the gates of Sodom would be, would be somewhats. They would be Sodomites. They would be fully assimilated into the culture, not only in their own actions and their own attitudes, but in the full acceptance of the culture. You are one of us. And that's where Lot was. As far as the people of Sodom were concerned, Lot was just like them. But it wasn't just the people who thought Lot was like them. Look at verse 6. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, shut the door behind them and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, we'll talk about what the wickedness they were wanting to do in just a minute. But I want you to notice how Lot addresses them. Not people, not fellow citizens, not you dirty, rotten sinners. Brothers, my brothers. As far as Lot was concerned, he was one of them. Now, what had happened to cause Lot to expose himself as seeing himself as one of them is the culture of the day kind of expected that if there was a stranger in the town, you would take them in and put them up. So Lot at the gate, as they come in, he bows down, he invites them to come, and they come and stay with him. And the people of Sodom, says before, it says in verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Right? So, so imagine, this is all the town, all the dudes of the town, everybody's there. And they called to Lot and they said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Now, these are the people of the town. This is how wickedly vile they are. Bring those dudes out here so that we can rape them all night long. Lot's one of them. They consider Lot to be just like them. He is fully conformed, fully assimilated. We, we not only see it in Lot calling them his brothers. Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 7. Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now look, I have two daughters who have not had relations with any man. Please, let me bring them out to you and you do to them whatever you like. Only do not do so to these men because they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, again, I understand the idea of the hospitality laws had expectations of protection and things like that. But 
But surely, surely offering your daughters up to be gang raped didn't fall under the hospitality laws of the general eastern world. This is particular to a city described as being exceedingly wicked sinners in the eyes of the Lord. But this isn't just the culture. This isn't just the city. This is Lot. This is Dad. They're not saying, the people of the city aren't saying, give us the strangers or your daughters and Lot's considering. This is Lot offering up his daughters to be gang raped all night long. Lot shared the exact same attitude of the wicked people. He had coveted, he had compromised, now he was conformed. But because of Abraham... In Abraham's intercession, God had determined to save Lot. Look at verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. Notice the first part of verse 16. But he hesitated. Now, there's been a a miracle that happened to show that these weren't just ordinary guys. Clearly, this is the Lord. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to save you and your family. Let's go. And Lot hesitates. He hesitates to leave because he doesn't want to leave his town. He doesn't want to leave his home. He doesn't want to leave his prosperity. He's considering if maybe the judgment of God is a better fate than being poor and losing his prosperity. So the men of the city, or the men, the angels, grabbed his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out of the city and put him outside. Now, this picture is not a, a picture of they're like, come on, let's go. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. It's, it's more that they, they gripped him and they're basically dragging him. You ever had kids and drugged him through the store? Shut up. Quit whining. That's what's going on here. He is dragging. They're they're having to be drug out knowing the judgment of God is coming. He is just like the people. In verse 17, it says they brought them outside. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere near the surrounding area. Escape to the mountains. You'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords. No, we can't do that. Now, if your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have magnified your compassion, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for, the, for disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. right? He, he's, he's basically go to the mountains, and the disaster he's talking about is losing his wealth. Going back to living in tents like he was before. If, if I have to go to the mountains, I'll have to live like I did before. But there's a town over here. Can I, can I go be a part of that? Will you spare them too? Look, is it not small? So they requested it. And they granted it. They told him to hurry there and escape, but he didn't even actually go there. He went somewhere else instead. Despite knowing the coming destruction of the Lord, he still wanted to stay in a city. Lot was still so attached to the things of the world and what it offered. That he could not flee 
God's wrath and God's judgment. Lot's time in Sodom had affected him to such an extent he was not noticeably different from the people of Sodom. When we covet the things of the world, we will make decisions of compromise to acquire those things. And after enough compromises, we are just like the world. We are like the culture around us and we are not like Jesus. And this sets us up to leave behind an ungodly legacy. The result of Lot's decisions, his coveting, his compromise, his conformity. There's many, but just one. And, And we'll have to cover it quickly is that Lot lost his family. They didn't leave him. But he lost them spiritually. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen over the earth. Lot came to Zor. And the Lord rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew those cities and the surrounding area and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, from behind, looked back. She became a pillar of salt. A lot of questions about what it means she looked behind. The most common, the most one that makes the most sense because notice it said she was from behind. So they had started to leave. And they were leaving. Sad that they were leaving their prosperity. Sad that they were leaving this awful, wicked place. And as they were going, Lot and his daughters were looking ahead and they weren't going back. But his wife, she slowed down. They were getting further ahead. She was getting further behind. And at some point, she couldn't bear the thought of not living in that city. I mean, even if they went to this small town that God was going to spare for Lot's sake, it was a small town. She'd been a somewhat an important city. She'd be a nobody in a small town. She, her heart just couldn't take that loss of the things of the world. So most think that when she turned around, she wasn't just glancing back. It wasn't just looking to see what was going on. She had fallen back and she turned to go back to Sodom. Better to die with them than to live without the things of the world. And so she got her wish. She became a a pillar of salt. And that was bad. The rest of the story is absolutely the worst part of it all. Verse 30, it says, Now Lot went up from Zoar with his two daughters and stayed in the mountains because he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in the cave, he and his two daughters. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to have relations with us according to the custom of all the earth. Come, let's make our father drink wine and let's sleep with him so that we may keep our family alive through our father. So they made the father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and slept with her father. And he didn't know. When she lay down or when she got up, the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, look, I slept with last night with my father. Let's make him drink wine tonight, too. And you go in and sleep with him so that we may keep our family alive through our father. So they had their father drink wine that night, too. And the younger got up and slept with him, did not know when he laid when she lay down or when she got up. And so both of their daughters of Lot conceived by their father. Firstborn gave birth to a son. She named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger gave birth to a son. She named him Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites, or of Ammon, to this day. Now, all of that's really bad. 
Here's the worst part of the story. Notice what his daughters did not say. They didn't get together and be like, what is the worst thing we could possibly do? I mean, what is the most abominable, wicked, horrifyingly despicable, disgusting thing we could do? Sleep with that. That's it. That's not what they did. They got together and they said, what is the best thing we can do? I mean, what, what should we do? What is the right thing for us to do? And, and they had been so conformed to the culture by Lot's choices that when they decided to try to figure out what was the best decision to make, this is what they came up with. Lot's decision to raise his children in Sodom had so affected them that they had the same morals, the same values, and the same priorities as the wicked people of Sodom. Lot's coveting, Lot's compromise, Lot's conformity destroyed his family. His wife died in judgment of God. His daughters did an unbelievably wicked act because they thought it was the right thing to do. It never occurred to them to do anything other than that. No one who destroys themselves or their families through sin intends to destroy themselves or their families. I feel confident in saying Lot did not intend to destroy his family. But because he coveted the things of the world, because he was willing to compromise the principles of God's word, he conformed to the values of the world. And the result of that was the destruction of his family. Mother's Day, I shared a quote. From the late Pastor J.C. Ryle, I'll share it again. This is the thought that should be uppermost in your mind and all you do for your children. In every step you take about them, in every plan and scheme and arrangement that concerns them, do not leave out this mighty question. How will this affect their souls? Dad's. The decisions you make every day will have an eternal impact upon the souls of your children. Think about their souls before you make decisions and as you make decisions. Now that we've seen the kind of of dad we don't want to be, let's look at a good example. Turn to Genesis 6. We're just going to look at a couple of places. We'll be quick-ish here. We think about Noah. We often think of him as the man who built the ark. And to be sure, building the ark was kind of a big deal. But focusing on the ark can cause us to miss the tremendous impact Noah had upon his family. In many ways, there is a contrast between Noah and Lot. I didn't cover it today. But there's a a part in the story where Lot goes to his sons-in-laws. And he says, the Lord is going to to judge this city. And and we must flee. And they laughed at him. He had so conformed to the culture that they would not believe that God had spoken to him. Noah, on the other hand, God speaks to him and says, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah's never heard of a flood. That's never happened before. 
God says, and I want you to build a great big boat. Noah's never seen a boat. God says, and I'm going to send two of every kind of animal to you, and they're going to get on the boat, and you're going to save them alive, you and your whole family. Okay. So that night, Noah calls a family meeting. And he has to tell his family, hey, God came and talked to me today. And there's going to be a flood. What's a flood, Noah? Don't know. God just said there's going to be one. And he said, we're supposed to build a boat. What's a boat? Don't know. God just said we're supposed to build one. And there's going to be animals come. And we have to be ready. We all got to get out there and do it. It's going to take all of us. And they said, you got it, man. We're with you. We believe you. Man, that's a different example. One from the other. Noah's legacy is in the fact that his family helped him build the ark. Noah's legacy is in the fact that his family got on the ark. Where Lot lost his family, Noah saw his family saved and delivered. So how did Noah go about leaving a godly legacy? What should we do if we want to leave a godly legacy like Noah? One, be sure we're saved. Verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Of course, we know in the New Testament we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One of the most disturbing teachings, warnings in God's Word, is about people who think they're saved, but aren't saved. Jesus warns against it multiple times. The Apostle Paul tells us to, to examine our lives, to test ourselves, to see if we're genuinely saved. The idea of, of being sure we're saved, of, of examining ourselves, is not a minor thing. It's not a, a thing to take lightly. How do we test ourselves? Well, we looked for evidence of Jesus. That's what Paul says. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 that, that those who are in Christ are a, a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Jesus says we're born again. Paul says that we have been washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. These are all big changes. It changes who we are and how we live. It changes our character and our actions, our thinking and our speech. How has Jesus changed you, Dad? How has Jesus changed you, Mom? How has Jesus changed you, professing believer in Jesus Christ? How are you different because of Jesus, not because you're older? You know, when I was in my 20s, I, I was reckless in how I did things. If we went to the to swim the river, I would find the nearest cliff and jump off of it regardless of how many rocks were around us in the water. You couldn't pay me to do something like that today. But that's not Jesus changing me. I'm just older and I'm frail and I break more now. Right? That's, I can't say, well, now I wouldn't jump off cliffs so Jesus has changed me. No, I'm older. How are you different? Because of Jesus, not because you've gotten married. Those of us who are married, we know that there's, there's single life, then there's married life, and there's changes that happen. If they don't, you don't stay married very long, and you go back to single life again. But you can't say, well, I'm married, and so I'm different. That's Jesus. It's not. 
We're just married. We're not because we've emotionally matured. They're not because of any external circumstances, but just because of Jesus. Look at your life. Look at your thinking. Look at your speech. Look at your values and your priorities. Look how you react to stressors. Is it more like what Jesus taught or more like what the world does? How are you different just because of Jesus? And if you can't point to anything, you ought to wonder whether or not you truly know Jesus. Because when Jesus comes in our life, He changes us. The only people Jesus never changed are those who rejected Him. So if Jesus came nigh unto you, and you left unchanged, you did not receive Him, you rejected Him in that moment. Far too many people rely on a prayer they prayed 20 years ago that has no impact on their daily life today. That is not what the Bible says. God's Word tells us to search ourselves, to examine our lives and look for evidence of Jesus. And if there is no evidence of Jesus, understand you have failed the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5 We cannot leave behind a godly legacy without genuinely being saved. And then secondly, consistently walk with Jesus. Verse 9 says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah's righteousness and his blamelessness flowed from the fact he walked with God. This refers to a consistent living with God. Noah wasn't hot and cold, up and down, in and out. He just daily walked with the Lord. Now I'm sure, since the people in the Bible were people with a nature like ours, I'm sure there were days where Noah felt better about things than he did about others. I'm sure there were days he felt closer to the Lord than he did on others. I'm sure there were days where it was easier than it was on others. But when all was said and done, Noah walked with God. Noah's walk with God led him to be obedient to God. Once God told Noah to build the ark, Noah did. He built the ark. If you look at verse 22, chapter 6, Noah did these things according to everything God had commanded him, he did. We see this repeatedly throughout chapter 7 as well. Noah did what God told him to do. From Genesis to Revelation, God wants His people to obey Him. Nothing will ever please God more than plain and simple obedience. Not only that, but it is, it is impossible to consistently walk with God without being obedient to God. We cannot walk with Jesus without being obedient to Jesus. The book of Amos tells us, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Jesus is walking true north. And if we deviate in any way, he's not changing his path to go with us. To be agreed with Jesus, we have to go where he's going. Follow where he leads. That is the path of obedience. Moms, dads, professing Christian. Are you walking daily with Jesus? Do you consistently do those things that deepen and strengthen your relationship with Jesus? 
You regularly in God's Word. You spend time in prayer. Faithful to church. You consistently live a life of obedience to Jesus. How you daily live for Jesus in front of your family. It matters immensely. A godly legacy begins with being sure we're saved and it continues being consistent in our walk with Jesus. One thing I, I want to end in, in this part is this is toward the end. One of the things when I was younger, I would have ended the message here. 2002, 2003, probably up to 2010, 12. I would have said, "Mom, Dad, how's your legacy?" Make a choice. Get it right. The end. But I was young and I was self-righteous and I really didn't know half as much as I thought I did. Now I've been a parent for 22 years. Two of my daughters are grown. One thing I've learned is every parent falls short one way or another. No parent in here has ever fully been the godly example they intended to be. My dad today shared on Facebook that his prayer for his sons was that they would be half the dad he intended to be. My dad was a great dad. But he can tell you things he wished he had done differently. If he could go back, things he would do differently. I know for me, I think it really hit when Caitlin was graduating high school. That was a big thing. And that was when it really hit me that, you know, they tell you when your kids are little, time goes by fast. And then, you know, she was two, and then she was graduating and going off to Shawnee to college. And, man, I felt panic, overwhelmed at all the stuff I'd intended to do. It didn't do well. And it's easy to let that sort of stuff be a source of guilt, stress, condemnation. For the enemy certainly would love it to be that way. But what I want us to end with today is, is hope from Jesus. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. For those He... Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We don't have time for a deep dive. We may not even have time for all the stuff I have on my notes. But I just want to point out a few things. Notice it says, He foreknew. In eternity past, before the foundations of the world, God knew all about you. God knew all about me. He knew He had created us. He knew our strengths. He knew our weaknesses. He knew our mistakes. And He knew our rebellion and our sin. God has always known everything there is to know about us. It also says those He foreknew, He predestined. Predestined means He preplanned. The God who knew us in eternity past, for the foundations of the world, He had certain things planned for us to do. Now the ultimate plan is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. We would be like Jesus. This is God's ultimate plan for your life. This is God's ultimate plan for my life. 
Then at the start of the passage, all things work together for good. Now, it doesn't say all things are good. Some things are bad. Some things that have happened to us in life are bad. Some of the things we've done in life are bad. But what it says is God is bigger. And He can cause all things to work together for our good. Now again, to be clear about what our good is, is that we would be like Jesus. So all the things that have happened to us in life work together to make us like Jesus. And all the things that we've done in life, good and bad, work together to make us like Jesus. But it doesn't just happen this way because God causes it to happen this way. All things in life that have happened to us, all things in life that we've done, they don't just coincidentally work out. It's not the universe. It's not karma. All that's nonsense. It's God. There's a sovereign God over creation who causes all things to work out for our ultimate good. And our ultimate good being like Jesus. And here's how this works in a father and a mother's legacy. God is bigger than all the ways we've blown it as parents. Maybe there's been times we were more like Lot than we were Noah. Take heart. God is bigger than that. Maybe there's times where we tried to be like Noah. But through our weaknesses and through our failures, we fell miserably short of the goal. Take heart. God is bigger than our mistakes and He will redeem all things and cause them to be used for our good and for His glory. Your legacy as a dad. Our legacy as parents. Doesn't have to be defined by the worst moments of our lives. Because God is bigger than our mistakes. And He can redeem them all for our good and His glory. In fact, the book of Joel promises that God can restore the years that have been eaten up. God does not leave us to be defined by our failures Instead, he brings good despite them. But there is a condition. This promise isn't for every person on the planet. The promise is for those who love God. Loving God is, is seen. It's not said. Loving God isn't a love song. It's not a powerful testimony. It's seen in the day-to-day actions of our lives. Jesus says those who love God keep His commandments. Those who don't love God don't keep His commandments. times I wish I could soften that up, but I can't if I want to be faithful to God's Word. It's pretty clear. This is why I say loving God is seen and not said. Saying we love God is easy. Anybody can say anything they want to do. I could tell you I could deadlift a thousand pounds, but it's a whole lot different to go to the gym and do it tomorrow. Anybody can say they love God. That doesn't mean they do. Loving God is seen in our obedience to His Word. Doing the things He wants us to do. So the promise of God redeeming all things and causing them to be used for our good and His glory isn't for all people. 
It's only for those who are devoted to God and actively living for God. To those who are called according to his purpose for them. You can't separate loving God and being called to his purpose. Because you can't be one without the other. You can't really love God in the way Jesus says we're to love God. Without being called according to his purpose for us. His purpose of being like Jesus. And those who are called to his purpose for them. Who are striving to become like Jesus. Well, they're going to be obedient to God. They're going to love the God who has saved them and changed them. Redeemed their life and their actions. So I I do want to ask, Dad, if your legacy was set right now, which one would you leave? What about you, Mom? What about you, Grandma, Grandpa, Uncle, Aunt, Disciple of Jesus? I know we focused on a father's legacy this morning, but everyone leaves a legacy. Which one will you leave? And what I want to challenge you to do today is is find this balance. On the one hand, leaving a godly legacy won't happen by accident. It takes deliberate, decisive, difficult, and often unpopular actions on our part to leave behind a godly legacy. So there's that part that, that we have to do. But I want you to live that with the tension of the fact that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Because He knew all the ways we would fail. He knew all the ways we would fall short. And yet He still planned for us to do the things He wanted us to do. So, determine To take decisive action. But don't let your current failures overwhelm you. Repent of your past failures. But don't let them define you. Turn to Jesus today. Seek His help. Seek His wisdom. Seek His guidance. In the end, we can only leave a godly legacy through Him. Let's stand.